On today's episode, we have rental investor Michael Malea. Michael has invested in under 200 apartment properties and participated in under 500 projects. He bought his first apartment when he was just 21 years old and never looked back. What I love about Michael is that he's generous, hungry, experienced, and truly believes in the power of giving back. Real estate investing for you. This is Pod Success. Pod Success. With Joe Arias, speaking to investors about the pitfalls and successes of rentals. These are top real estate investors. These are experts in the business. And this is Pod Success. Pod Success. Here is Joe Arias. We're here with Mike Malaya. Mike, how are you? I'm doing spectacular, Joe. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited. You are our first guest uh, on the rental department, on uh, the apartments and rentals. So, Mike, just why don't we just maybe start a little bit about sharing a little bit about you and, you know, for how long you've been in the business in, in rentals and, and how did you get in the business and all that good stuff? Okay. I may, I may date myself by how long I've been in the business. I worked on buying my first house when I was 14. With I saved up money from selling seeds and paper route and different things. I had the down payment, but they wouldn't give me a loan. Um, I bought my first duplex to buy it and fix it in when I was 21 in the city Lawndale, and it was a duplex. Lived in one of the units, fixed it up, then moved to the back unit, fixed that one up, and then eventually sold it in exchange into something else, and did this. I hate to tell you when it was early, it was late 70s. So 78 was when I was started doing this. And then I, for some reason, I said, I thought I should go off to law school. So I sold the real estate I had at the time, went to law school and became a tax lawyer at that time, because that's what I liked doing. So I practiced law for a few years. Then again, I liked real estate way more than I liked practicing law. So I went back in and was buying and selling and flipping properties in Southern California from about that point from about 86 or 87 to about 91 or 92. The real estate market went in a huge crash at that point. And so had to go off and find something else because nothing was selling at that point. And then I practiced law for another 14 years or so until about 2004. In 2004, I just said, I, I don't like practicing law. And I wanted to get into the real estate business, but I'd been practicing trust and estates law. And that didn't translate directly into real estate. So after talking to a lot of people and getting a lot of advice, people, it was interesting because what I started doing is going to very successful people and asking them, here's, here's where I'm at. Here's what I would like to do. What would you recommend? And if I would ask for a job, they wouldn't talk to me. But if going to it, um, get advice from successful people, there most people are willing to give you advice. And I was able to talk to a lot of very interesting people. And what it came down to is really to make it in the business, to get back in and to be investing in real estate. Probably the best is become a real estate broker and really understand that market. And at that point, the choice was, do I want to go into houses or do I want to go into apartments and income property? And income property really appealed to me much more than houses. Houses, I, I'm not a big holding open house person. And I viewed it, I go to play tennis with somebody and, and hopefully they list have me list their house. 
but apartments are more dollars and cents. It's more based on logic. And I got into, I went to a company called Marcus and Millichap, which is the largest commercial brokerage company in the country and worked there for about seven years, focusing on apartments in the South Bay. Sold a lot of apartments. It, it took me literally, even though I thought I would know everything because I practiced law, years to be able to really properly evaluate properties and to determine what's the things they're looking for and what are the um, the characteristics that will cause one property maybe to appreciate more than another property and what is, um, and to find a comfort zone between safety because you never want to lose a property. So between safety and appreciation. So I worked there and then I went to my partner who had been at Marcus and Millichap for longer than me, about 13 years. We went off and we worked it, moved to Keller Williams, where we're now the largest, either first or second largest commercial group in the country for Keller Williams. And we sell a lot of apartment buildings, but we also invest in a lot of apartment buildings. And But the money generated from the brokerage allows me to invest in more and more apartment buildings. So that's kind of a short history of a few years. Yeah, and it's very admirable. And you bought your first house when you were 14. And, and you did well, your I didn't business. buy it at 14. They once I wanted to, they wouldn't sell it to me. <laughs> I know exactly where that house is to today. <laughs> So you you wanted to become you wanted to really get into into commercial real estate have passive income rentals, and you decided right. that you wanted to become an an agent first. Is that right? It was the way to get there. It was a kind of a means to an end. To the extent if I'm in the if I'm looking at rental property or apartment buildings and talking to owners all day long, I learn more and more about the market. I also see what deals are coming. And I have access to that. And it just and it's a way to make sure income's coming in. Because sometimes when you have income property, you may be able to have a lot of cash flow, but sometimes there's not going to be as much cash flow and you need outside income. You don't need it, but it's very helpful to have, depending on how successful you want to be. And I liked brokerage from when I did not like practicing law, but real estate brokerage was fun to me because I basically was helping people. I was making a difference in their life, somehow talking to them about their goals. What do you want out of life? How do you want to get there? Is this real estate you have going to get you there? If so, good, you're on the path. If not, what else could we do? And how do you want to set it up for your kids? And could really make a difference in people's lives. And I like that. You were able to to make a difference when you were an attorney as well, right? Yes. I mean, it, it was. I was doing trust and estates law. And yes, I was a really good attorney. and. People liked me, but I just did not have the passion for whatever reason. You'd have to talk to my therapist. But for whatever reason, I don't like practicing law, but I like real estate. Yeah, It's just a, something that I can look at all day long. It just excites me. It's fun. And it really, I like going in the office. I will never retire. It just, if I was practicing law, I would say, oh, how many more days till I can retire? Here, I have no desire because I'll just... I'm not going in the office right now, but I'm always on the computer looking at properties, seeing what's for sale, seeing what's out there. And it's just very fascinating to me, keeping yeah. in the business. I'll keep doing it because it's, it's it just is a fun 
business, when you really like what you're doing, it, it's not work at all. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I, I Let's talk about retirement and, and what is retirement? What does that mean? And why do people, why do you think people work their entire lives and they can't wait to retire versus there's other people, you call it entrepreneurs or, you know, there's just different, different people where they just... They just really don't want to retire. It's it's interesting. It's usually, as you say, it's entrepreneurs that won't or somebody that loves what they're doing. Because if you're going through something and no matter how much money you're making, if you don't enjoy it, all you're looking for is getting out. This is my occurrence of it. And it's almost like you're, for lack of a better phrase, you're in prison for however many years until you're 60 and then you get to get out and do what you want. Versus an entrepreneur, you get to choose. I mean, you want to plan it. You want to have a um, successful budget. You want a, you know, a structure to make this successful. But then you can do what you want. And you're choosing on a daily basis, how am I going to be successful? And what you're doing is getting rewarded for your work. And it's if you work hard, you're going to make money. If you slack off and take you know, days off and watch movies all the time, you're not going to make that amount of money. So it's really up to you what you want to be. And it's, you know, for lack of a better term, it's it's what the United States was built on. It's people mm. who want to lift themselves up, get what they want. And as an entrepreneur, why would I ever want to quit that? I like the people in real estate. I like um, talking to people about real estate. I like buying property. It's just, it's a lot of interesting. Every time I meet a new person, I get to hear a new story, kind of what we're talking about here. How did you start in real estate? Why did you buy an investment property? What's your first property? You just learn a lot of fascinating things from people. Do you think, you know, I I found the, 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 the concept of entrepreneurship just fascinating. And I we don't share much on the, on the show, but do you think you can be an entrepreneur if you work for a, a, corporate, a corporate job or you have a 95 but you actually really enjoy what you do? At some level, yes. You're, you're always, I think people, a lot of people say, I don't want to be in sales. But in, at some level, everyone's in sales because even if you're at a corporate job, you are selling yourself on a daily basis to work your way up the ladder, what have you. It's What it seems to me is that some people inside a corporate job, they're, they're limited and they're doing what they're told they're going to do versus and it's it's there's a level of safety in it but there's also you're limited because you're no matter how hard you work you're going to get your salary and maybe a little bit of bonus and if you're an entrepreneur you have that choice even though it would seem okay I'm an entrepreneur I'm a real estate broker I can work whatever hours I want I'm probably working more hours than I was when I was practicing law but it doesn't feel like it and it's almost my wife would know sometimes I'd say, all right, fine, I'm getting ready to leave. It's, you know, I'll be home for dinner. And all of a sudden it's like an hour and a half later. And I'll say, well, something came in about this property. I had to look at it. I had to do this research and I had to call somebody on it. And she just would know that I would get, could get caught up in stuff. And it's really took a, a focus of mine to say, if I'm going to leave, then I'm actually going to leave at that period of time and then do the work later. But there from an entrepreneur, it's, I think that there's a level of, as I said, being um, protected or taken care of when you're in a corporate job. And it's scary going outside of that and being an entrepreneur. And unless you have training or um, a, a structure that's in place that you can step into or mentors, 
it's very hard to leave the corporate environment because of that that safety. And you don't want to go out there being recreating the wheel. There's a lot of people who've been out there before you who've created this wheel and you want to learn that. And it's really about being you can move it over and safety. There was a uh, famous guitarist, Jerry Garcia, who would say, don't one of his songs was don't quit your day job till your night job pays. So really, and what he was saying is if you're working at a corporation and you're starting doing real estate, so you just say, all right, I got two hours a night and all day Saturday to do it. You slowly can build up to it, which gives you, it's a longer process, but it allows you to eventually step into that world if you want to. Absolutely. We, we you know, actually a lot of our students, uh, they, you know, they are very excited. They start the education and they ask us, hey, Joe, do you think that I should just quit my job? And, you know, we all, we always tell them, don't quit it. Don't just quit yet. Quit when you have that backup plan already moving and there's actually income coming in because, you right. know, it, it could, it could get, it could get, you know, scary and, 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 and you have to have that safety net and, and you have to jump to the other side. So I think that if you have a good job, you like, you like your job and you want to, you know, create a, another source of income, it's, it's perfect. It just make sure, like you're saying, Mike, like make sure you build it and then you can make the transition smooth transition. Right. But yeah, and you also inside of that want to, for something, and that may take a few years, you want to have this goal struck. You want to really know where you're going. So you're having something you're always moving towards, something that excites you. And, and so it's really important to set up and create where am I going to be a year from now, two years, three years from now. And so you're working towards it. So every time you're working a little, you know, two hours more at night after your day job, instead of watching, what America's Got Talent or whatever, that you see I'm doing this for my future, for myself, for my family, and it's going to make a difference in our lifestyle down the road. Absolutely. I think this is a good segue, uh, Mike, to, you know, a lot of our students are starting up on the rental world and they want to buy, you know, a few buildings and, uh, you know, kind of build it. What advice do you have for for you know the the student that does have no experience, they have some money, and they wanna they wanna get into the into the business. So good is to learn. I mean, something like you have here. The more you learn before, the less mistakes you'll make. And it's always something I've noticed. It's very hard to earn money and to build up. It's a slow process. It's very easy to spend it and lose it. That goes very fast. So you want to make sure that you're taking. When you're investing, you want to learn from somebody that's already done this. As I said, don't recreate the wheel. Either maybe invest with somebody or as I did, I went and became a real estate broker and I was in that industry. I didn't start investing day one. I learned all about property and I learned from people who had been in the business for 10, 15, 20 years. What did they look at? And really look for successful people to mentor. Because I always say, if you want to be successful, find a very successful person and do what they do and see how people do it. How do people set their goals? You know, I would see people that very successful now, but that used to write their goals. One guy I knew that moved his family right next to the office so he could go over to the office. This was years ago. And he had his goals on the steering wheel. He had his goals in the shower. He had his goals right next to his computer at work. And that's another one that would write down his 25 goals by hand every day. And both those things, you say, well, that's that's a lot. And both those people are very wealthy right now. 
And so it's learning and seeing what other people do. So I, I tend to would start slowly and either invest with somebody else or learn from somebody else because there's a lot of people who will buy income property and they look for investors. And so you you investigate this and look at a lot of properties. And so it's it's not a quick, all right, let's go. Well, I got some money. Let's buy a property in two weeks. It's really a slow real estate is a very kind of long term wealth building. You can flip houses with income property and tenants and apartment buildings. It's more you buy a property, you slowly fix up the property, you increase the rents over time, you're paying down the mortgage, and soon you have an equity built up. And then you either exchange that property in a bigger property because there's um, something called a 1031 tax-free exchange that they allow you to exchange income property into another income property with certain rules without paying any taxes. So it allows this to go on, or you can borrow against your property to buy another property. And it starts slowly. I had one client and he was buying duplexes and little four units and eight units. And when I had met him first in about 2004, he would call me up and he liked me as a real estate broker. He felt I, I took care of him and I would really, it wasn't about how can I make money off you? It was about how can I take care of him knowing again, then in the long term, we'll make money with each other. But I always say I like to sleep at night. So it's really important to me from an ethical standpoint to take care of people. But what anyway, the point being is he would call me up and say, you know, I have a million dollars in my petty cash. Let's go buy a property. And what happened is he had so many properties, they, they just started throwing off cash flow. Then he has his million dollars. He goes and buys another property. Now he's got more cash flow coming in. And it's just this thing that keeps rolling along. But it's not something that happens overnight inside of this. It's a slow process. And, but I know many people, I will see somebody that was a school teacher, you know, and they never made that much money. And all of a sudden they own four or five income properties they bought slowly over their while they were teaching, and now they have all this cash flow coming in. They don't have to work. They can do whatever they want. They have the cars they want. They can take the vacations they want. And it didn't take that much income to make this happen. It just took a plan and keep implementing that plan over time. Beautiful. So, so just just to bring it up, so we can actually give you know give our our listeners, our students, something tangible. Let's say that someone has you know half a million dollars, a million dollars in cash and whatnot, what is the next step? They call you, right? Call you, call an agent. What is the next step? With I'm, I'm a little bit different to the extent I've been doing this for a while. And here's, here's a phrase they use in real estate, just so you're aware. And it says, buyers are liars. And most buyers will come to real estate brokers. And this is important for your your students to know most buyers will come and they're not going to be loyal to that real estate broker. They're going to have the real estate broker do a lot of work for them. And, but then maybe they'll buy the property from somebody else. And what you want is to get a few real estate brokers working for you that trust you. I right now, because I've been around for a while, unless somebody has maybe a million or $2 million in cash and says, I need to invest and I have a period of time. I have six years, I mean, six months and I will invest in this time and you are my broker. I probably won't work with them because mm. a lot of buyers will come in and say, I want to buy a property and you work, you work, you work and you find out, well, they want to buy the best deal ever made. 
or the best deal ever in existence. Well, I can sell that to 50 different people, the That's best right. deal ever. But if they say, I have a plan, it doesn't, it has to be a solid deal. Here's how we're going to move forward. I am going to use you. Then I'll work with them. But I, as a real estate broker, and you have to realize the people you work with, all they really have is time and they're selling their time. And unless you respect that, you're not going to get really the good brokers to work with you. And that's where you're going to find your properties is you have relationships with very experienced brokers that are seeing a lot of property come across, across their desk and also who recognize good deals and that will come to you early. Yeah, so, that, that is a good, very good point. But here you're thinking as an agent, like, like let's change the hats and now you're an investor, right? And you're giving it. And that's what I'm saying is I'm, I'm looking at it from the real estate broker side. So to try and say as an investor, here's what you're looking for, because part you're looking for property, part you're looking for a broker to partner up with, because that's who's going to find you property. You, I mean, it's hard to go and say you need to take something like what you're designing here on how to prepare people. If you have $500,000 and less, if they, you've never bought a piece of income property, I would not buy a piece of income property immediately. I would either go with somebody else who's done it a lot and that you really trust and have them partner up and buy with you. And maybe what they'll do is they'll find the property, they'll take care of doing all the work and you'll put up all the money and you'll figure out a way to split the profits. That way you can take advantage and learn what somebody else knows. Because buying on your own, this is just my, other people will have other theories, that you buying on your own, you're going to wind up making mistakes because you don't know the difference between buying on street A and street B or buying in this town versus this town versus somebody who's been selling property in that area for 20 years knows more. Or somebody, and I know, Joe, you have bought and sold a lot of properties and you know how to go look for property. So if somebody is talking to you and saying, all right, how do I do this? What can we do? And I'd really recommend they figure out a way to either partner up with you. And I'm not sure how, if you guys do that or mentor and have somebody there who can walk them through the process and know where they want to go. Know this is a goal to not just, the goal is not just to buy a property, but what does that property represent? And what is that property, particular property going to lead to three years from now? A lot of income property you're buying for long-term cash flow. Yes, it's going to go up in value, and it's not usually as a flip because you can. And we bought property that we are planning on holding. I know it's a long answer to the question, but property that we may have bought, and we said we're going to hold it for seven to ten years and build up the income, and and then all of a sudden it may be three years from then, and our projected number that we want to hit, we hit it. So at that point, we may sell and exchange it and move on to something else where we can add value to it. But it's really important to build up the long-term plan of what is this all leading to? Where do you want to go? And where do you want to be, as I said, one year, two years, five years down the road? And will this particular property help you get there? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, definitely need to have a plan in place, a 10-year, you know, five-year, two-year, one-year plan. So what would you suggest for our students if, you know, there's always uh, agents are great at finding deals, either they do different campaigns, door knocking, they call, you know, um, direct sellers. What would you suggest that the besides mentorship and, and coaching and, and, you know, working with a really good agent, if, if what could we what value can we provide to our students if they want to find the deal themselves, let's say, or, or another venue to find the, the deal themselves? Uh, 
when we're looking for a property to buy, so say we we've decided to sell a building, now we need to buy another one for to do, as I said, the tax 1031 exchange. The ideal property for us, and because some people want properties that are already fixed up, they just sit and hold them. For us, what we'd like is a property that's been owned maybe 20, 25 years. Somebody, an owner has owned it, they've gotten tired of it, they haven't raised their rents, their rents are below market, the building is tired, it doesn't look maintained, and we know that we can step in and buy it at a, a at a reasonable, if we can buy it at a reasonable price, and that we can step in, raise the rents over time. You know, usually we're fixing up, right now we're doing, we fix up a unit in an apartment building, say we're spending $20,000 to $25,000 for each unit of the apartment building, replacing the floors, painting, replacing the bathrooms, redoing the kitchens, putting up ceiling fans, you know, uh, maybe redoing the plumbing and the electrical. So we're looking at, all right, if we, we look at a matrix almost and say, here's what we're going to buy the building for. Here's what it's exactly going to cost us to fix it up, whether that's roofs, new windows, how much per unit to fix it up. And then we add those two numbers together and we then look at what is our cash flow going to be in all, because then you'll have a building that's appreciated in value and is your cash flow. If you do all that work and you make 1% on your money, that's not the greatest. You'd rather, if I can do that work and I have a building that's now producing five, six, seven, eight percent cash flow, I can sit on that for a long period of time. And if there's a loan on it, that loan gets paid down over time. And there's two ways really to make money in rental real estate. One is income and the other is appreciation. If I buy a property down near the beach in a city like Santa Monica or Manhattan Beach, you don't get very good cash flow but over time you have a lot of appreciation. So you're looking at that, all right, I'm gonna make money on appreciation and just kind of break even. You go to other cities, I'll, I'll call them working class, C locations. Something by the beach may be an A location, you go to a C location and you now will get better cash flow and you just sit there and that's a building you may hold for seven or 10 years that will, after you rehab it, is gonna throw off, you know, whatever, five, six, 7% cash flow. And if you're getting a loan at 4%, you're making enough money to pay that loan down and have cash flow to yourself and make a very good rate of return and have money to start building up and buying another property. So we're really looking at what type, and there's four ways you look at value, by the way, what apartment people look at apartments. They look at what's called a gross rent multiplier, which is how much the building, you take the rents for the year and you divide that into the price. Sellers want a very high gross rent multiplier. Buyers want a very low gross rent multiplier. Say, say if you have 100,000 of gross income of all the, all the tenants, what they pay, their total rent for the year is 100,000. At a gross rent multiplier of 10, the price is a million dollars. At a gross rent multiplier of 15, the price is a million five. So you don't want to pay a 15 gross rent, buy at a 15 gross rent multiplier when the rest of the properties in that area are selling at a 10. But if you can buy something at a 10 that already has very low rents, that's really good because you know you can move it up to market and then you can have some appreciation. The second way, which is a little bit, gross rent multiplier is very um, kind of general because it, it doesn't take into account what are the expenses. Every building has more some more expenses. Some buildings are older, so they have more rehab. Some buildings are what's called master metered, where the landlord pays for the utilities. 
Most buildings are individually metered where the tenants pay. So the next way to look at it is cap rate. And what cap rate is, is you just take the amount of cash flow the building has, the, the rental income, minus the expenses, and that gives you your net income. And then without taking into account a loan, you're just looking at income minus expenses gives you net income, and then you divide that by the amount of money you that the property costs. It's in essence, you would like a bank account. If I have a million dollars and I put it in the bank and it earns 3%, that's my net income. That's like a 3% cap rate. If I have the bank across the street earns 5%, now I'm making a 5% cap rate and I would probably invest over there. So the cap rate actually looks at the expense. As a, just a little aside, when you're a buyer, brokers will send you for apartments, they'll have gross rent multiplier, which is pretty flat. They'll say, here's the cap rate. Never, ever trust the cap rate the broker gives you. Some, most are honest, but a lot of them don't know how to calculate it because what you'll need to do is have not the property taxes the buyer was paying. I mean, the owner or the seller was paying. You have to have the new property taxes the buyer was going to pay. So those will actually be a higher expense. So you want to make sure you actually are allocating enough to fix up, enough to different things. So you always want to develop your own cap rate. I mean, rough, I'll give you a very rough way to do it is you say maybe there's about a 5%. When you're looking at a property, you take the in gross income, you maybe put a 5%, subtract a 5% vacancy. Because there's usually vacancies. Somebody moves out and it takes a while to rent it back in. And then approximately about 35% in expenses, 35, 40%, depending on the building. And so you can kind of see generally what a cap rate should be. So that's just kind of a rule of thumb before you start. Because eventually, if you go into the building and you make an offer, usually what you're doing is buying these buildings subject to inspection. You don't get to see them first. You say, all right, I like, I drive by it. I like the way it looks. I like the income and the expenses. And so now we'll make an offer. If we agree on price, then you get to inspect the building. You have your inspector go through. You see, is there, you know, how is the roof? How is the plumbing? How is the electrical? How is the sewer system? Then what you'll do is, and then see the leases. Oh, if they told you the leases, as I said, the income add up to 100, but you see it's only at 80, then you say, well, what's going on? They say, oh, well, it could be 100 if you raise the rents. Well, I'm not paying on it what it could be. I'm paying what it is. So you want to look at the leases. You want to then say, show me your electric bills. Show me the utility bills. Show me the insurance. And show me all the money you've been spending on this building so you can kind of get a feel for the building and you do your due diligence at that point. So that's look at the other two ways people look at are a dollar per square foot and you buy a building you i was looking at a building last night and it was at the price the guy was asking it was 275 dollars a square foot which is a in this area is decent in another area it's pretty high so when there's buyers who will go you show me a, a property in this city i need it to be not more than 200 dollars a foot or 300 dollars a foot and they'll buy they're called price per foot buyers. And because it's very important because they know the more the more real estate they get, the lower the price per foot, the more rental income they'll be able to get for their purchase price. And the last one is a price per unit where somebody will say, all right, I don't want to spend more than 200000 per unit. The per unit one's a little interesting because it, it doesn't take into account what if a building has two three-bedroom units and two two-bedroom units in 51 bedroom units. You know, the price per unit is 
can change depending upon the unit mix. But there's a lot of people that look at that. So you'll get all four types of buyers that will look at different things. And as you invest, you'll get more comfortable with one or the other. And eventually you'll want to use some, you'll look at, most people I know right now are really looking at primarily the first one at a dollar per square foot. And then they go to the grocery multiplier and cap rate and then maybe a cost per unit. If one of them is out of whack, they're probably not going to buy the building. If, you know, three of them look really good and say the cost per unit in that area is 200000 and the cost per unit on this one is 500000 you're going to say, wait a minute, if I buy it and ever try and sell it, I'm never going to be able to resell it above 500 per unit. How am, you know, I can't afford to pay that amount. So these are the things you look at. And the long, the more you look at buildings, the better you get at it. And going back to previously, if you're looking at build, what you want to do, and it's very, have you probably heard it said a number of times, look at a hundred properties before you buy a property. Go drive by, run the numbers, look at a building that, you know, something that's fixed up what it's selling for, something that's not fixed up what it's selling for, or pick a market and get to know every single building that's for sale right then in every building that's sold there in the last three or four years. So, you know, so when a new property comes up in a particular city, you can say, all right, based on that, this is a good deal. This is an average deal. This is a lousy deal. You just get better at it, but you got to look at properties. You got to get experienced at it. Yeah. Repetition, right? Yes. Over and over. So what, what would you say are the biggest roadblocks that a new investor could make? Would it be like on the price, maybe buying overpriced or buying something that is in really bad conditions? Do you have like a, like a filter for like conditions? Like, okay, if you have foundation problems, you're not buying it. But if you have maybe some like, you know, maybe the drywall, it's, it's not that good. Who cares, right? You can replace it. Do you have any, any filters around what do you buy and what not? Not really. It's a factor of price. If foundation's bad, it's a bigger issue and we're going to get a bigger discount or we're not going to buy it because why do all that work? Because it will be a bigger, a bigger project. We are selling a building right now where that's why the person's selling it because the foundation is drooping and it's going to cost $700,000 to fix that foundation. It's a, lar it's a larger apartment building. And there's a lot of buyers who don't want to get into it because they don't know what, you know what else they will find in there. Anything at the right price, at the right price, I'll pretty much buy anything. So it's knowing the price. So as you say, overpaying for a building especially if your plan is I'm going to hold it for a period of time and then resell it. Um, you got to be careful on that. Getting too large of a mortgage because if the markets go up and down over time and the worst thing that can happen is if you get, if during um, the markets go down, you have to sell it, you're going to lose all your equity. So as long as you have cash flow in a building, you can hold through any downturn. And you wait till the other side of the downturn, it's going to go up in value and will go past where you were before. So it's really important that you have the ability to survive in here and you're not putting everything in and your mortgage payment is too high that if one tenant moves out, that all of a sudden you can't pay your mortgage and you lose the building. So it's being very cautious, especially in the beginning. And I tend to be, I was probably more of a risk taker when I was younger and I tend to be more cautious because... I don't like to lose money. I don't like to take the chance of losing money. And a lot of my clients are older and they want conservative investments that will go up in value. So it's overpaying. It's getting too hard. 
of a mortgage is buying property with more problems than they realize, that they didn't do the proper investigation, that they didn't hire. It's worth almost being a pain to get everybody. Don't skip it and say, hey, I don't need a um, a property inspector to go through because I can save 500 or $1,000. No, get a plumber over there to run the sewer pipes because brand new sewer pipe and they'll run a, um, a snake down there or a, a camera and they'll charge you $200, $250. But you try and save that money and all of a sudden a year into owning the building, you need a $25,000 new sewer. You weren't counting on that. Where's that money coming from? So, so inside the buying, you make more money, they always say, on the buy side than on the sell side. Because on the sell side, you just sell it into the market. The market is what it is. You sell it in there. People are only going to pay what it's worth. But with a lot of research, you can buy better. Real estate is an imperfect market, which is one of the reasons it's very interesting in that every building is a little different. That's not pure that everything's exactly the same because the rents will be different, the how it's been maintained will be different, the location will be closer to a corner, you know, in the middle of the street, there'll be more, you know, whatever, rowdy neighbors, there'll, there'll be whatever's going on. And you really can buy, being careful, you can buy a building that will prove to be a gold mine over a long period of time. So that's inside of being too quick to purchase, not being aware of what you're purchasing over leveraging, not having a plan for long term and not looking at enough properties and not doing proper investigation before you buy the property and going and knowing what you want to buy. Say you say, I want to buy a building and that has a current 5% cap and is at $200 a foot. And you see one that's at $300 a foot at a 2% cap. And you say, oh, but I really like it. I'm going to buy it. It's not part of your plan, but somehow you emotionally went away from it. So veering off of your plan is only going to get you in trouble or saying all of a sudden, you know, I'm buying property in there's a city called Torrance, California. I only buy property in Torrance, but all of a sudden I see a car wash in Minnesota that looks like a great deal. I'm going to go buy it, but you know nothing about it. So buying things you know nothing about is a huge problem that I see happens all the time and people regret it. Buy, you know, buy slow, buy very slow and which what I mean by that is really be careful about what you're buying and be be willing to make a number of offers until you get exactly what you want, because you're going to wind up owning this property for a long period of time. Absolutely. Mike, when you when you purchase your properties and, and you know, you hold them, do you manage them yourself or you get a you know, you, you give it to a management company, a property management and they handle it? How do you go about that? What are your systems? I used to manage them myself, but I, I realized there's some people that are really good at managing and they just have a natural inclination for it. And that's not me. So I always use management companies and some people will never want to use. They always want to have hands on. My dad, when I was growing up, would manage all his own properties. He would collect all his own rents. He would climb under the house and fix the sewer. You know, he would do all these things himself. And it was you make money doing it. But sometimes I will look at and say, all right. You know, I could pay a management company or a plumber X number of dollars. It takes me longer. I may not do it right. You know, in essence, I'm saving $10 an hour or something, something that I could go out and looking at for new properties, I can make more money doing. So it, I always hire a property management company. The vast majority of people are not happy with their property management company. So it's another one that you have to pick very carefully and interview a lot of people talk to different property management companies, find the way they report their income to you. 
how much they're going to spend to fix it up and talk to people that they manage properties for and see how happy those people are. That is a great advice. You know, not be the technician, not be working all the time for the property, but hiring a company, you know, having them manage it and then freeing your time so you can actually put, put your time on other things like buying more real estate or just being with your family or doing whatever you want to do. Maybe, Joe, that in the beginning that you have to manage it yourself because you can't even afford your you're going out there and to be conservative, you're managing it yourself. And that's OK as long as that's your plan and that you're you have maybe a backup plan if, if it gets too much because it's taking away from your family. I will tell you, my dad would he had the special phone for the tenants every time that thing rang. My dad was fine with it. My mom just. Um, she cringed. It just drove her nuts because all of a sudden he's going, he's missing dinner or something. Some people don't mind it. I had another guy, I was looking at selling the property for him and his wife and they, um, the wife was really interested. I talked to the guy, I met him at the property. He goes, we're not selling this property. If you sell it for us, then I'd have to be at home with my wife all the time. I want to <laughs> be, this is my hobby. I like coming out here. I like talking to tenants. I like puttering around. So it, it was what kept him busy. So everybody's a little bit different. That's very good. Last question. So we can we can, uh, we can can wrap it up. I think that the, our students are getting massive value with this. Um, what asset protection do you suggest? Do you, do you do LLCs? Do you do trusts, S-corps, C-corps? You know, what, what is your advice, especially being an attorney on this? Yeah. For real estate LLCs, it's the best. What an LLC does is it, it protects you, your other assets. In, if you own property in a, inside an LLC and say somebody, whatever reason, something happens, somebody sues you, they only can go after the assets in that LLC. They can't come outside and take your other assets. From a, the LLC has kind of replaced, it used to be a limited partnership. The LLC somewhat replaced that. Corporations, either C-Corps or S-Corps are not as good a vehicle to own Real estate, they may be better to own a business, but not so much real estate. The LLC protects you and it, it, you have a pa it's a pass-through entity. So you still get the depreciation on your tax return and the rental income and comes through while protecting your asset. The next question comes in, how do you, if say you own three properties, do you put all three in one LLC, which a lot of people do? Do you put separate LLCs for each property? The safest is separate LLCs for each property. It, it starts getting you know, a little bit more expensive because you have separate tax returns. You have to pay in California $800 a year to the state of California for the privilege of doing business for each LLC. So there's different things you have to draw them up, which is not that expensive. So it's just how you want to design it. And then if you have different investors, say, I don't know, pick a, you and your brother buy one property, you put that in LLC. Now you're buying a property with your neighbor that has to go on a different LLC because there's different investors. You can't you can't combine the two and have different own differently owned properties. So LLC always. LLC, that's great. Yeah, I mean you're you're mentioning that you you purchased a, a property with an LLC. You put yourself you as a as a manager, right? Right. God forbid something happens in that building, they can only sue that that you know that 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 owner, but they can also go against you uh, personally. So if they go against you personally. What is the best advice? Is it better? Is it good not to have anything towards your name? So then, then actually, if they go towards you directly, you are protected. Now, because if you if you own property in an LLC, the theory is that they can't come after you directly. 
Well, they can. No, that's why it's an LLC is a separate entity. It's like a pick. If you own stock in IBM. Anyone can sue you if they want to, right? Anybody can sue anybody, but there's no um, recourse. There's no standing or there's no connection because you on the outside, you're, you just happen to be an owner or a manager out here. The LLC owns the property and the, that's the whole reason they're set up is to stop people from suing individuals who, who run the LLC or own the LLC. So that's why the LLCs are so important. The other thing people do, which is relatively inexpensive, is buy a um, umbrella pol insurance policy. You can get a lot of coverage for very little. What usually it's somebody, you'll buy an umbrella policy, say for $3 million on your house and the rental property. And if somebody slips and falls, you have that protection. And maybe, I don't, you'd have to look it up and talk to your insurer. Maybe that's $5,000 or $10,000 a year. And that gives you a lot of peace of mind. The umbrella policy is the other way people do it. And it's, they're not a bad, not bad ideas to have either. Absolutely. Yeah, we've done that too. That's, that's a great advice. Mike, last, last question. Any, any less advice you want to, you want to leave our, our audience, our students with you've done, you created tremendous, tremendous value. Is there anything else maybe I didn't ask you that you want to share? I mean, it, it kind of goes back what I tell people they're starting, especially in brokerage or any place is, you know, first get the, get the experience, have a mentor, but figure out if this is your passion. Yes, you can make money doing things like I, I know people and they can come into real estate and make a lot of money, but if they hate it or they're dragging themselves out there, you know, they're going to hate their life. Don't find something you enjoy, you know, figure out or figure out what part of real estate you enjoy doing and go in that direction and find your passion and follow that because then it doesn't seem like it's not work. It's just fun all the time. What is, isn't there an old Zen quote or something about, you know, life is wonderful when there is no difference between work and play or something like that. But it's, yeah, that is absolutely. really important is enjoy your life. Have this be fun. Have your, get your family enrolled because if you're doing it and your, your spouse and or your children aren't excited by this and the possibilities this creates, your life's going to be miserable too. So make sure the Absolutely. whole family's kind of excited by it. Yep. Yeah, okay. You have to, you have to enroll other people in your dreams, right? So right. You can That's a good way go to, to the same direction. Last question. What is real success for you? Interesting question. Real success is being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And which doesn't mean never working. It means that I'm choosing what I want to do. I'm choosing to be a real estate broker, a real estate investor, or choosing to take an afternoon off and go to the beach. So having that flexibility in life, I don't need to own a helicopter. I don't need to be that wealthy. I also have gotten where I've done this long enough that I get to choose who I work with. And I really, that is important to me, who I work with on a daily basis, because it's the people you surround yourself with. What's the saying? The five, how your life will go based on the your five closest friends. Who you surround yourself with? Are they going? Are they bringing you up? Or are they bringing you down? And I like to surround myself with people that bring me up. And I have those choices now. Beautiful, just beautiful, awesome, uh, Mike. If our students want to reach out to you, they might want to uh, buy from you or talk to you about potentially partnering or you know, maybe putting some of their money to work or you, you name it, how can they reach out to you? Um, either I'll give you a phone number and 
you can look just go to my website as well. But the phone number is 310-939-9356. And I think MikeMillay.com, M-I-K-E-M-I-L-L-E-A.com. Beautiful. Mike, once again, thank you so much for being in the show. Uh, we appreciate you. Thank you for all the all the wisdom today. And, um, and thank yeah, you. I just want to thank you, Joe. And I think you're doing a great thing and making a difference in people's lives. And thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for uh, once again to being in the show. And everyone have a great day. Real estate investing for you. This is Pod Success. Pod Success. With Joe Arias, speaking to investors about the pitfalls and successes of rentals. These are top real estate investors. These are experts in the business. And this is Pod Success. Pod Success.